the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody. This is The Tom Sumner Program as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, welcome to live radio, folks. I'm uh, supposed to be connected to uh, author of a debut novel called Good Looking, based on his experiences as a criminal defense attorney. Uh, T.L. Beckett is his name. I believe that's how you pronounce it. And uh, I was expecting him to um, be on the line, but he is not. However, I did an interview just recently with um, Dr. Susan Landers, and uh, we talked about... um, Oh, what did we talk about? Have to check my notes here. Oh, I know. I might even... I do have my notes here. Had to look a little bit. Sorry for the delay. But uh, she's the author, uh, she is a neonatologist, which, if you have not heard the word, I hadn't either, as you will find out during our conversation, which took place uh, just within the last couple of days. She is the author of a new memoir called So Many Babies, My Life Balancing a Busy Medical Career and Motherhood. And it's a a very interesting uh, conversation about working in the uh, intensive care unit for uh, 
infants and um, some of the uh, strains and, and pressures and so on. So I'll try to reschedule T.L. Beckett. I think that would have been a very interesting conversation because he talks about um, oh, just um, some of the injustices in the justice system. And I was looking forward to finding out if he adds that to this crime thriller he's written called Good Looking. Uh, but what we'll do is uh, we'll go ahead and uh, get into our conversation with, uh, with Dr. Susan Landers. And uh, we'll try to reschedule T.L. Beckett uh, when we can. So stay tuned. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, my guest this hour is a neonatologist, MD, and author of a new memoir called So Many Babies, My Life Balancing a Busy Medical Career and Motherhood. And her name is uh, Dr. Susan Lander. She joins me by phone. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thank you for the invitation. This is quite a treat. Well, Susan, I, you know, one of the things that I love about doing this show and talking to people like you is I learn stuff all the time, as, as I think we're going to over the next uh, uh, half hour, 45 minutes. But um, I learned a new word today, neonatologist. <laughs> I've, never, I've never seen that word before, even though I've, uh, I had a, that, that means basically what? It means someone who studies the newborn. Ology means study of, and neonate is the official word for newborn. So neonatologist is someone who studies the newborn. In reality, we are uh, ICU doctors for babies. We, uh, a neonatologist has completed training in pediatrics, three years of residency, and done an additional three years of neonatology fellowship before we can practice neonatology. Well, it's it's interesting because um, I've heard the word um, neonatology, uh, or, or no, I've heard the word neonatal, as mm-hmm. in neonatal intensive care unit or NICU. I had a daughter that was uh, diagnosed with a, a slight sleep apnea at birth and um, spent a couple weeks in NICU before going home with a monitor, and we don't need to go into mm-hmm. her whole medical history. But I am somewhat mm-hmm. familiar with, with the concept, but I just never heard that uh, that noun before, and uh, it's that's interesting. But the book is a memoir, and it really talks about your work with um, NICU and with infants, but also motherhood at the same time. And that must have, going home must have seemed at times like a busman's holiday. <laughs> Indeed. Um I grew up uh, as a mother and a neonatologist together. And so the book was my attempt 
to tell the stories of very special patients and their parents who I found most inspiring and courageous and um, helpful. And I wanted to tell those stories and tell the stories of my learning to be a mother, how to be a mother, to be a good mother, and work full-time as a neonatologist. So it's written in a way that the that the NICU stories are entertaining and inspiring and the motherhood challenges and uh, trials are also reassuring, I hope, to other working mothers. How many children did you have? Uh, we have three children. As they're all young adults now, a son and two daughters. And I had a physician husband who was wonderful because when I wasn't here at home, he was. He's a pediatric nephrologist. He takes care of children with kidney disease. And he had a much lighter schedule than I did and did not take night call in the hospital like I did. So I didn't have to worry when I was in the hospital at work. He was home with the kids. Well, that worked out well or or you managed to to work that out well but tell me about uh, about the field and how it's changed in the years you've mm. been in it good question 35 years in one field at the end of the book i put a little addendum and i walked back through the major developments in those 35 actually 40 years and the field started when um pediatricians really were busy in their offices and didn't have time to staff the ICU. And so some pediatricians um, used ventilators and used IVs and took care of babies who were hospitalized and stayed there around the clock. And so the first thing that came along was mechanical ventilation of infants. Next was CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. And as premature infants were born and developed respiratory distress, this device that fit in their nose kept them breathing well enough to survive. Then came along artificial surfactant, which we put down in their lungs to help their lungs function properly. Then came along hyperalimentation fluids, which is IV nutrition. Then came along better ventilators, better medicines. Um, oh, gee, what else? Uh, all sorts of controlled trials of various treatments. Um, NICUs popped up all over the country in the 70s and 80s. It was not until um, the 80s and 90s that we started talking about regionalizing neonatal intensive care. It's not something every little hospital can do. You can't just take care of a premature baby if you're in a town the size of 2,000. So children's hospitals were developing around that time. And most children's hospitals and larger adult hospitals 
that delivered mothers had neonatal intensive care units. And so the field of neonatology morphed as uh, our treatments got better. And something else happened during that time. Working women delayed childbearing and more and more women were going through infertility services and having babies at a later date and we saw an increase in the rate of prematurity and multiple births, twins, triplets, quads, etc. Right. So all of those forces happened at the same time and now the field of neonatology is uh, part of standard pediatric care. More with neonatologist and author Dr. Susan Landers straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Tom Sumner, Program.com. The Tom Sumner, Program.com. The Tom Sumner, Program.com. Staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side See you on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride See you on the other side It's not the same without you here this phone so tight And I'll whisper you a goodnight kiss I'll see you on the other side When I crawl out of my cage When the world is purified I will find you and I promise this I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side See you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide See you on the other side See you on the other side See you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide See you on the other side Hello darling, this is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark with Tom Sumner 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. And if you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with neonatologist and author Dr. Susan Landers straight ahead. What are some of the conditions that uh, create the need for a baby to be placed in a intensive care unit? The most common um, abnormality is called late prematurity. And that is a baby that's born between 34 and 37 weeks gestation. Full term is 40 weeks. So many babies are born right there on the cusp, and they look like normal full-term babies, but they don't breathe well, they don't eat well, they have more jaundice, they need more phototherapy, they have more low blood sugars. And so that's a big bunch of babies who need NICU care, but they need it for only short periods of time, you know, a day, a few days, a week maybe. The biggest group of babies that occupy NICUs around the country are extremely low birth weight preterm babies. These are babies less than two pounds at birth, many less than one pound, and also babies of all gestational ages who have birth defects, congenital heart disease, spina bifida, kidney abnormalities. So the ICU has all kinds of babies from the tiniest fragile preemies to the big full-term baby who's got a heart defect. We take care of all of those babies in the anybody that gets sick in the first month of life. You know, it's interesting when you talk about low birth rate and and premature birth. And I mentioned I I had a daughter that was in the NICU for a couple of weeks after she was born, but she went full term. And and I, this is kind of a flashback for me, Susan, because mm-hmm. I, I, I bet. Yeah. because I spent you know the better part of two weeks almost I wouldn't say around the clock, but I spent hours every day in the NICU, and I remember thinking that, that my daughter looked like a giant in, in, her, <laughs> in her incubator because, because all of the babies were so tiny, and, and she was tiny. I mean, she, you know, she was normal weight and, you know, went full term and all that, but because of her sleep apnea, they wanted to watch her for a little while and, right. um, before sending her home. But I, I remember going in there going, God, my kid is huge. <laughs> anyway. Compared to the other tiniest I, ones. Yeah. I the tiniest you... ones uh, stay the longest, unfortunately. You know, a baby that's born at one and a half or two pounds will stay in the hospital four or five months, typically, until they can grow big enough, uh, eat enough to gain weight, breathe regularly, get off the ventilator, get off the IVs, and do all the things normal newborns need to do to go home. Uh, And some of them do stay quite a long time, and there are quite a number of tiny babies in most ICUs these days. Now, with with low birth weight, low birth weight and, uh, um, and, and preterm, babies are they 
are they not strong enough to make it on their own? Is, and, and what kinds of things do you do for them that gets them to the point where they can safely leave? Low birth weight and preterm babies are notorious for breathing poorly, <laughs> as your daughter did, for inability to suck and swallow and in a coordinated fashion and inability to control their breathing while they're sucking and swallowing. So depending on the degree of prematurity or the birth weight, babies may have respiratory distress where they have inadequate surfactant to inflate their lung. Surfactant is a milky substance that's inside of our lung air sacs that keeps our air sacs open, much like a soap bubble. Anyway, now we have artificial surfactant, and so we give them that artificial surfactant, and their lungs recover, but they're still kind of tiny, dumb, little premature babies. They don't know how to breathe regularly, and they don't know how to suck and swallow. So what we do is give them IV fluids, uh, nutrition, while they're growing, and we start them on mother's breast milk. The best thing on the planet for a premature baby is mother's own milk. And we slowly advance their feeds while they're coming off the ventilator, and we get them to grow, and we give them the medicines they need to breathe regularly. Caffeine is used commonly in NICUs because it promotes regular breathing. And as they're growing and getting stronger, we teach mom how to breastfeed, we teach dad how to bottle feed, and, the ba- and, we, and we gauge the baby's ability to control their own eating and breathing. It's really as simple as that. You, you can't go home until you're big enough to stay warm on your own, breathe on your own, and eat enough to gain weight. And that process can take six months for some babies. It can take two months for some babies. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and I would think that um, this has got to be a pretty demanding uh, job on all of the people who work <laughs> with these babies um, in, in the NICU because not only are you concerned with um, life and death medical care, but you also have to be counselors to moms who, who go through mm. all kinds of emotional issues um, when they have babies that, that are born too soon or low birth weight or have some other malformity that puts them in the NICU. I, I would think that would be extremely demanding. Well, it's a, it's a good point. It's it's demanding in a way that we know how to take care of it and we know how to help moms and dads at the bedside. The bedside nurse is the crucial touch point for NICU parents. All of us as a team, whether it's the nurse practitioner, the bedside nurse, the respiratory therapist, the neonatologist, we all rely on that bedside nurse who helps us read what's going on with the parents. Um, She knows whether mom is touching her baby and talking to her baby. She knows if mom's standing there um, two feet back crying and not making adequate breast milk. So as a team, 
we pick up on how parents are doing in the NICU. And there's the NICU social worker and physical therapist and occupational therapist. And we all work together to monitor how mom feels and how mom and dad are adjusting. Many women who have preterm babies feel guilty about it. And it's usually not their fault. They may have had high blood pressure, preeclampsia, so-called pregnancy of um, uh, hypertension of, uh, excuse me, pregnancy-induced hypertension. They may have had ruptured membranes. They may have had an infection to cause the premature delivery. Most commonly, it's not their fault. And often, we don't know why moms deliver prematurely. But women being the way women are, especially mothers, we feel guilty. Did I? And we say to ourselves, did I do something wrong? How, how did this happen to me? So we have a lot of reassuring to do. We have a lot of hand-holding and encouraging to do. But most parents rally in a way that is so remarkable. Most parents in the NICU get through their denial and shock. They adjust to the visits. Like you say, you're in the hospital for two weeks visiting that baby, your daughter. Some of these parents are in the hospital every day for four or five months. Um, And we see them become stronger than they knew they could be. We see them do courageous and brave things. We talk to them about how they're managing the other kids at home. We talk to them about whether it's hard to get to the hospital and they need a ride or need a taxi to be paid for. So the process is actually very rewarding to the staff because the parents get to know us and trust us while we're taking care of their little one. Even though the baby is our patient, a lot of what we do is with the parents of the baby. And in the staff in an NICU, um, how do they work together? And, and what is, is their interaction with other healthcare professionals like a, a family's primary care physician or a pediatrician, obstetrician? The staff, yeah, the staff work together. Um, and give each other tips and feedback. They're, they're, nowadays, pediatricians and family practitioners don't come into the NICU much anymore because we take care of everything, and then the care of the baby is transferred when the little guy or gal goes home. Obstetricians will come in to visit with mom after a premature delivery. Um, there are many, many other specialists that come into the to the nursery, the NICU, the cardiologist when the kid has a birth defect, the neurologist if there's a problem with the brain, the nephrologist if there's a birth defect of the kidneys or kidney function problems. So there's lots of subspecialists that come into the NICU and see babies, but it's not usually the general pediatrician or family practitioner. Um, they take over care once the baby's ready to go home. But the staff are um, nine times out of ten rewarded for their work. Most of what we do turns out well. Most of the babies in the NICU 
get better, respond to treatment, grow, and thrive. It's a minority of babies in the NICU that we lose or they don't respond to treatment and they go on to die. So it's not like we're in a sad place all the time. Actually, it <laughs> can be a happy place. It can be a really happy place. Are, are you still working? No, no. I retired uh, four years ago. It, it, the reason I was asking, because I just wondered how how this has, um, how people in your field, other, neonatologists and other staff members in the NICU, have been managing and functioning during the, the pandemic? Well, COVID um, was, of course, a ringer for everybody. Um, a lot of the NICU nurses got pulled to help in other units. And that was uncomfortable for them because if you take care of little babies, you're not very comfortable comfortable taking care of an 80-year-old. <laughs> but anyway, um, in the beginning, we were separating mothers and babies when mo- we thought mother had COVID. But, but then we decided, well, when mom has COVID, she's transferring antibody to the baby and she's not going to give the baby COVID as long as we practice um, hand hygiene and masking. Um, So initially, we were doing the wrong thing. We were separating mothers and babies. Um, We saw some moms with COVID who became very, very sick and went to the ICU, but the babies didn't get sick, and especially the babies who were breastfed did not get sick because sick moms transferred antibody in their breast milk, uh, whether she nursed or pumped her milk. So COVID didn't hit us like it hit the big people I see you. I mean, the, the weight of COVID was felt in the emergency room and the adult ICUs all over the country, not so much in OB and the NICUs, not nearly as much. We just heard so many stories about hospitals being mm-hmm. overwhelmed and needing equipment and yeah. PPE and all that kind of stuff, and I just just wondered how the the impact was on NICU or. Well, yeah, it was the same in the sense of masks and gowns, special gowns and shields and gloves and and yeah, but it, it really depended on the kind of hospital people were working in, and often we were lucky that we didn't have too much of a PPE shortage in any of our big hospitals here, and certainly they didn't in the NICUs. So. But, you know, one thing, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, COVID brought out in all of the medical staff, nursing, medical, respiratory therapy, support, just how fragile we were in a stressed system. Not only was there lack of equipment and lack of PPE, but there were people who were working way too many hours, too much overtime, schedules that were crazy. And everywhere saw healthcare providers getting burned to a frazzle, overworked, overwhelmed, physically exhausted, emotionally strung out. And, and I think what people noticed within the medical field was the burnout that COVID hastened. The, the burnout in healthcare providers was really accelerated by this pandemic. It pushed people further than 
they were used to going. They all rallied and they all met the challenge. But I think what we're seeing now is 42% of physicians feeling burnt out and 40% of nurses feeling burnt out and people considering leaving medicine and nursing as a result of the pandemic. And that is really sad. That That is sad, especially as we seem to be coming out of it. Yes. As we come out of it, I think what, what I'm reading uh, uh, in my... Uh, And my articles that circulate uh, around the doctor circles, you know, AMA, Medscape, WebMD, things like that, is that people are trying to figure out how to prevent burnout for nurses and doctors. How can we make the system better so, God forbid, if we have another epidemic um, or other mass casualty, how can we be better prepared the next time? What can we do for doctors and nurses to help them not be so overwhelmed what, by what, the sheer volume? Susan, what are some of those things? Is it a matter of more staff, or is it um, something structural, uh, cross-training, or, or um, having uh, uh, supplies of, of materials in advance of, of some kind of a, a sudden surge. Yeah, well, clearly it's having adequate supplies and uh, equipment, and it's having adequate staff and not working your regular staff uh, to to the bone with overtime. But what I'm reading about, and and from my own experience, and listening to other people, especially internists and and family practitioners and pediatricians. Uh, work schedules are going to have to change to allow physicians a little more time off. The electronic medical record is a briar patch. It is awful. Physicians hate it, whether they're in the hospital or based in the clinic. It takes time away from patients. It puts the physician in front of a computer or a laptop, and it is an onerous task, no matter where you work, the electronic medical record. Now, there are a lot of good things about the electronic medical record, but it's number one um, complaint. The other is, the other complaint that I'm reading about is, is physicians and nurses don't feel like administration hears them. They don't feel like the people who run the show are hearing what they need whether it's more staff, better scheduling, less administrative work, less bureaucratic hassles. It varies by different specialties, so I I can't speak about all the other specialties. But in general, doctors are saying they're not getting the administrative support from employers and managers um, that they think they need. Um, What to do about it, other than healthcare organizations coming to terms with preventing burnout is we have to teach physicians how to take care of themselves when they're not in a pandemic. We have to teach them about self-care. We have to teach them that it's okay to not work 50 to 55 hours a week. 
that's the average for physicians. The average for the general population is 40. But physicians work 50 to 55 hours a week, depending on the specialty. Um, we have to talk to physicians when they're burnout. We have to figure out who's burnout and who's not. And if they are, help them to get therapy that they need. My guest is Dr. Susan Landers, a neonatologist and author of the new memoir, So Many Babies, My Life, Balancing a Busy Medical Career and Motherhood. More with neonatologist and author Dr. Susan Landers. commercials give me headaches just when I'm feeling chipper as you please that's when they show me all my sinus cavities headaches headaches those sponsors don't care how my headaches see that announcer he looks so fine his head should ache like mine <laughs> Headaches, headaches Those pounding hammers give me headaches They say it once and then they say again Oh, tension, pressure, pain Oh, tension, pressure, pain Headaches, headaches those sponsors love it when my head aches. Mother, don't hand me those pills from the shelf. I'd rather do it myself. Sponsors love it when my head aches. There is one remedy that's unsurpassed. And their commercials give me headaches. Fast, fast, fast. Headaches, headaches. Aspirin commercials give me headaches. Today I swallowed the best cure yet. I ate my TV set. <laughs> From the Tom
Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with neonatologist and author Dr. Susan Landers straight ahead. Susan, what what prompted you to to write this book? I that's uh, a very good question. I retired when I was burnt out. At age sixty-two, I was exhausted, physically overwhelmed. I had been taking night call for years and years and years working 55 or 60 hours a week away from my home. I was emotionally tired, too many tiny babies having bad outcomes, too many big babies with birth defects that were inoperable. And I just felt awful. I got to the point where I didn't like going to work. I didn't uh, want to talk to anybody. I hid out in my call room. I did not feel I was making a difference. Those are classic symptoms of burnout. And I'll tell you, we were in a meeting, my neo group, we were in a meeting talking about how we were going to cover a new, smaller labor and delivery service at a hospital, um, small hospital outside of Austin. And they were going to just, you know, deliver a couple of thousand mothers and babies and have a little level two nursery and mainly it would be seeing normal newborns. And we're sitting in the meeting trying to decide who was going to cover the nursery. And I said, I'll go cover that nursery. I think that sounds wonderful. <laughs> and I said, I'm really getting old. You know, I'm 62 and I need to kind of, you know, cut it back a little and my young partner sitting next to me, he must have been 40-something, he said, you're 62? And I said, yeah. <laughs> And you know what he said? He said, my mother is 62. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, that, everybody laughed, of course, ha, ha, ha. And I volunteered to go to this low-risk delivery service, and for two years, the last two years of my practice, I settled down. I loved being around the newborns, I loved talking to new parents. There was very, there were very few sick babies. A few. I did a couple of resuscitations, so it was very worthwhile to be there. And I started thinking about really getting better. You know, I was exercising. I was having lunch with friends. At that time, I was working thirty-five hours a week. To me, that seemed like a piece of cake. I. I joined a handbell choir. I learned how to ring handbells. And um, I just started getting better. And as I started getting better, treating my burnout, 
I decided to write down the stories of my most special or most difficult patients. It's kind of a journaling exercise, I guess. And I wrote down the stories, and then it kind of became obvious that it was their parents that were the the most meaningful lessons for me. And and then somebody said, well, if you're going to write down the stories of your patients, why don't you write down the stories about your children? I went, oh, okay. And so the book was born out of my looking back over the most memorable patients and parents to make sense of it as I was recovering from burnout. Does that make sense to you? It, it, it does make sense. Um, who, who do you think gets the most out of this book? Well, I hope that working mothers will read it and be reassured. And I'll tell you why. So many moms in the NICU would talk to me about issues with their children, other children. And I would say, oh, my God, I have the same problem, too. And we'd sit there and we'd chat and the nurses would chime in. And the mother would say, I cannot believe you have the same problems. You're a doctor. How do you have problems? You're supposed to be doing this perfectly. And I'm going, are you kidding? We all make the same mistakes. We all have the same struggles. And so... I want other working mothers to know that we all have the same struggles with childcare, with sick children, with problems, with breastfeeding, with uh, school issues. I mean, and the list goes on and on. So I wanted the book to speak to working mothers as much as I wanted the book to open the door to the NICU and the kinds of patients that we see. And the inspiring stories of the parents. Susan, is this book a uh, a one-off? Have you written anything else, or do you have any plans to write more? Uh, uh, it's my first book. Uh, my friends think that I should have plans to write more because the publisher didn't want me to include the uh, med school and residency chapters <laughs> since I wasn't <laughs> married and a mother then. Um, I have written an ebook for called Caring for Your Late Preterm Infant that I want to make free to parents who have late mm-hmm. preterm babies, those big preemies between 34 and 37 weeks. So other than my ebook and my blog, SusanLandersMD.com. This is my book, and uh, whether I go on to write a second book or not, I'm not sure, but my friends say that I'm going to. (laughs) (laughs) Friends are really good about making suggestions, but... uh, Aren't they? (laughs) It it doesn't always uh, go the way that they they say. Susan, we're, we're out of time, but I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you so much for uh, sharing some of your knowledge and experiences uh, with me and the listeners this morning. Thank you. It's been delightful, and I really appreciate your questions and your interest. Well, Susan, uh, take care and good luck with the book. Thank you so much, Tom. Bye-bye. Bye. Again, that was... Uh, 
Dr. Susan Landers, neonatologist, retired and author of the new memoir, So Many Babies, My Life Balancing a Busy Medical Career and Motherhood. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docs were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. From the Well, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to uh, my guest uh, this last hour, neonatologist Dr. Susan Landers. What a great hour. And we will try to reschedule attorney and author T.L. Beckett for another time. Thanks again to Susan McClellan for uh, introducing me and us to Robbie Weissman, the subject of the book she collaborated on, Boy from Buchenwald, Buchenwald, the true story of a Holocaust survivor. And thanks uh, to Bible scholar and uh, author David Heron, author of The High Sign. Um, who uh, was with us for the first hour of our three-hour tour. Coming up tomorrow on the show, it's Wednesday, which means armchair politics. It was going to be our first face-to-face, but it's been called on account of rain. But we will have our regular edition of armchair politics. Um, Janworth Nelson will be joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, and we'll start the show out with economist Chris Douglas. See you tomorrow. Good night, everybody. Sumner program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. 
most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.